If you're gonna start a startup, you're gonna have to get someone to do exactly what you want them to do. If you've got a kid or a dog or a friend who refuses to watch Ted Lasso, you know how hard that can be. Today, we'll talk about how to get people to do what you want them to do. Most importantly, we'll talk about how to get people to want to do what you want them to do. And to do that, we'll first have to talk about how difficult it is for me to get out of the shower. This tie-in is a bit of a reach, but we'll hopefully pull it off after a little smooth jazz. This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through our product, the Tacklebox Method, and we play smooth jazz and run through startup tactics every Wednesday on the Idea to Start a Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea. Maybe you're ready to launch. Maybe you already started something and you're already flying ahead full steam. We're here to give you the tactical strategy that'll give your business the best chance of success. You can do anything, but you can't do everything. We'll teach you how to prioritize and how to act. Have a topic or a question you want us to answer on the pod? Leave us a review and add it in the comments. We'll get to it. And with that, let's go. Now that you've had a minute or two to try and figure out why it's hard for me to get out of the shower, I'll tell you, and I guarantee it's more boring than whatever you came up with. I live in New York City and New York City means compromise. The compromise Bree and I make for an apartment we love is that a few years back, Fordham put their business school roughly 10 feet away from our window. My bedroom and living room, the only two rooms New Yorkers haven't recognized, both look directly at Fordham's study rooms, where people in their mid-20s pretend to look over HBS case studies, but mostly just flirt with each other into the wee hours of the morning. Bree and I have all sorts of bets as to which students are gonna end up together. It's like our own very boring version of The Bachelor. Anyway, I have trouble getting out of the shower because you never know when the people in the rooms will be staring directly at my window while they fight over who gets to do the intro and conclusion parts of their group presentation. That's a deep cut for any business school folks listening. One perk to the window situation is that I've noticed a kid who comes to the study rooms alone nearly every day around 9 p.m. He sits with his back to our window so I can see his screen. And every time I look, he's playing the same game. It doesn't look like a particularly fun game. From what I can gather, he's just planting crops. Then he waters the crops. There seems to be some sort of marketplace where he's then selling his crops, and then he buys more land and plants more seeds. He's got a comically large laptop, so I see this all pretty clearly. I'm not sure what's more pathetic, him doing it or me watching, but I don't judge anyone on how they spend their time. My biggest takeaway from my virtual farmer neighbor is actually the game itself. Whoever made the game was able to take this smart, driven young man, he's in business school so he's got at least some baseline of ability, and hijack his time and make him do digital grunt work. If we paid this guy a few bucks an hour to do what he's doing, it'd be a human rights violation, but he chooses to do it for free. He's actually probably paying to play the game. Why? As I mentioned in the intro, if we're gonna be entrepreneurs, by definition, we're gonna have to get people to do what we want them to do, which is buy and use our products. Watching that young virtual farmer tend to his fake crops left me in awe of those game designers and sent me down a rabbit hole on human behavior that led to a few mediocre gamification books and eventually a really good gamification book called Actionable Gamification by Yukai Chow. I'll link to it in the show notes and I recommend it and his blog. Chow built a framework we'll leverage today called Octalysis. It's my favorite type of framework. There's nothing earth shattering there, 
but a collection of somewhat common sense things that become transformational when arranged in a certain way. It's straightforward and it is highly usable. Chow's core thesis is something we've seen at Tacklebox over and over. People don't do things because they're practical, they do things because of how they like to feel. The why is always more important than the what or the how. If your customer doesn't think they'll feel a certain way while using your product, they won't use it, full stop. If this is true, and it is, then we should be designing products from the ground up with exactly how our customers will feel at every touch point as the core focus. This means we need to understand human behavior and more specifically, all the possible motivators of action so that we can deploy them. Chow identifies eight of what he calls core drives of action. The point from the book that resonated the most with me was that without one or a combination of these core drives, nobody's gonna take any action, ever. If you want your customers to do something, you need to orchestrate it. If you don't, you won't get any customers. And if you don't evolve those drives, if you don't adjust and change motivators as your relationship with your customer evolves, they'll churn. We never, and I mean never, just use someone else's framework on idea to startup. We always come up with our own stuff. But honestly, Chow's framework's kind of great and it's usable. I'll outline it here, then we'll leverage it to build out our own startup idea in a few minutes. I'll quickly go through the eight drives that Chow identifies in his Octalysis framework. First, epic meaning and calling. Basically that there's a bigger purpose compelling you to act. Second, development and accomplishment. It's exactly what it sounds like, and it is definitely a motivator for our farmer friend. Third, empowerment of creativity and feedback. Also pretty straightforward and exactly what it sounds like. Fourth, ownership and possession. Probably a strong motivator for our farmer friend who's built out these massive fields and probably enjoys watching his virtual farm empire grow. Fifth, social influence and relatedness. This is the people driver, mentorship, friendship, so on. Sixth, scarcity and impatience. Wait lists work, scarcity works, urgency works. Seventh, unpredictability and curiosity. This is the gambling motivator. Lots of similar actions, but every once in a while there's a potential for a massive outlier. Eighth, loss and avoidance. This is the sunk cost fallacy. Our farmer friend continues to tend to his fields because if he doesn't, they'll rot and die and he'll lose them. If you had a Tamagotchi in 1999, you're familiar with loss and avoidance. As you can see, drives can be used to make the customer better or make the customer worse. When Facebook and Instagram went down last week, the big joke was about how happy people were. But when they came back, ownership and possession, social influence, and loss and avoidance led people right back to wasting their time on the apps. Facebook and Instagram know this. They know they make you feel like shit, and they know that that will make you come back. They are not good people. This stuff is powerful, and we need to harness it, ideally for good, to give our products a chance. It's likely that your customers will get over an initial friction point because of one drive, then stay engaged because of another. Here's an example. You might initially decide to volunteer to dog shelter because of the epic meaning and calling drive. Maybe you saw on the news that a bunch of stray dogs were shipped up north after a hurricane in the south, and you want to be part of something bigger than yourself, finding them all homes. Then, maybe development and accomplishment take over as a core motivator, as you help a few pets get adopted. Next, ownership and possession motivate you, as you create friendships with other volunteers, 
and you start to take on more responsibility. But if on your first day of volunteering, you didn't help any dogs get adopted and no one from the shelter made you feel like you were important, made you feel like you were part of this epic meeting, you're less likely to come back the next week. You're actually almost certainly not going to. As entrepreneurs, we need to design all this stuff. We need to ensure that whatever our version of the dog getting adopted is, happens. We can't leave it up to chance. And that's what I found so interesting about this framework. First, the realization that without specific orchestrated motivation, no one is doing shit. And second, the ability to leverage that framework to motivate your customers. So let's give it a spin. I've got a fun idea I've been dying to talk through. An idea floated across my desk a few weeks back and I got permission from the founder to talk through it today. The idea is simple, a network of Airstream trailers. If you aren't familiar, these are the hipstery silver trailers you see a lot out west and up in the Catskills and Adirondacks. They're trendy and beautiful and minimalist and they check all of the 2021 boxes. What makes this a network is that there are two customers. On one side, the entrepreneur will be selling Airstreams to people with land. They'd put the Airstream somewhere on property they owned, then the company would come in and outfit them, set up string lights, furnish them, set up the Wi-Fi, take pictures, and put them up on the site. On the other side, the entrepreneur would be selling to people who wanted to stay at a network of Airstreams in beautiful places across the country, similar to Airbnb, but only with Airstreams and only for members. Let's try the Octalysis framework to see how we create momentum to get one side of the market to buy. I actually think both sides are super interesting, but we'll go through the end user today, the person staying in the Airstreams. But maybe we'll talk through the person buying the Airstreams another time or put it on a Patreon if we ever make one of those. First, we need a name for the company so I can refer to it the rest of the pod. For our purposes, we're gonna call it Air Supply after the Airstream trailers and the criminally underrated 80s band. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google I'm all out of love and come back in 20 minutes when you're done crying. Your first impressions with a company are often like your first impressions of someone you're considering dating, superficial. Things that matter less and less over time matter a whole lot initially. You really need to put your best and the right foot forward to start if you wanna gain customers. The nuances and depth that will keep people around that will build the relationship usually come in later. Something else will hook them initially. A good trick is to think about building a dating app profile for your company that your customer would see. They're swiping through, what would you put on there that would motivate them to swipe right and message you? What message breaks down the friction? If someone saw your profile and wanted to tell a friend about you, what would they say? What's the most succinct and important thing to motivate that action? What feeling do you need to create to kickstart momentum? Well, that's what this framework is literally built for, so let's get to it. And for our purposes, and for my sanity, if you know me, we've got to get more specific on customer than just people looking to stay in an Airstream. The entrepreneur I spoke with wasn't totally sure on who they'd target first, but I have an idea who I would target. The digital nomad. Somebody who wants to hop from Airstream to Airstream, waking up in the mountains or the desert or beside a creek with fast Wi-Fi and the solo living essentials. So let's go through each of the eight tribes and see how we'd approach them for this customer. First, epic meaning and calling. This one would be great. We need to align with our customer's belief that they're doing something with a higher purpose, that this is so important to their life that they need to align everything around it. 
Seth Godin's ever important people like us do things like this is perfect for meaning and calling. It's motivated before, it'll motivate again. Messaging here for that dating profile might be around prioritizing life and nature without minimizing the day job. Things like, you're meant to live differently, so you've got to work differently. You prioritize life over work, but you've still got freelance clients lined up down the block. Join the fight against office spaces. Actual work-life balance. Join a community of people who work differently. The second one is development and accomplishment. For your dating app, your first interaction, this likely isn't too useful. Building a structure of points based on stays that unlock hidden Airstream locations eventually might be pretty fun, but as a motivator early on, probably not too relevant. Next, empowerment of creativity and feedback. This one's about helping your customer get the most out of their ability. Something around the idea of find out where you work best to help them get engaged in the nuances of your product, to understand the breadth of Airstreams and how it might impact types of creative work or analytical work might be cool. But I think this is probably best for later on, not an initial messaging path either. We'll skip it. Next, ownership and possession. Again, likely a valuable motivator after a customer converts and you can probably increase engagement with this type of messaging, but maybe not something we put on a dating profile. Feels a little bit clingy. Although messaging like help build a nature first digital nomad community from scratch might hit on ownership and epic meaning. I'd probably try that one out. Next, social influence and relatedness. This one is tailor made for air supply. We can appeal to the customers who are trying to build their personal brand, either for business or for other reasons. Things like your brand is unique, work like it. We could also push specifically towards people creating content and list out features with industry-specific messaging. Things like ring light, Sennheiser mics, cloud lifters, and everything else you need to differentiate your digital nomad brand. This gives us an opportunity to speak directly to our customers, to let them know that we know exactly what they need and build that relationship. Next, scarcity and impatience. We could do something like limit membership or force people to apply. I'm not sure it's a core motivator early on, but it might be. Something like 100 digital nomads are accepted to air supply year one. Next, unpredictability and curiosity. Probably not a useful tactic here or probably ever unless random members get access to super rare or desirable cabins based on a lottery system or something like that, but doesn't seem too relevant. Finally, loss and avoidance. I think this one could be really powerful. Things like don't lose your connection with nature just because work got busy or don't ever go back to office life again or don't lose X, don't lose Y, don't give in. Loss aversion is powerful for all customers, but this type of customer where they're trying to show that this is their lifestyle, saying that you are going to lose your lifestyle unless you do this is powerful. So without really knowing much about this customer or the product, the exercise has created a jumping off point for a bunch of different approaches to motivation. When I think motivation, I think friction, headwinds and tailwinds, what's keeping my customer from buying and what might push them towards buying. The messaging we just came up with off the top of our heads in the last 10 minutes could help with both headwinds and tailwinds. Spending a few hours perfecting and nailing that messaging could anchor your company. Do this with your business. Understand initial and downstream motivators. 
Understand exactly how you need your customer to feel at each step of the way as your relationship matures. And then make sure you design for that feeling. Tests will help you see which dating profile gets the most matches and messages. Then, as you build your relationship, shift to new types of motivation. One type might put asses in the seats. One type might keep them there. And another might push them to grow and share the product. So now you know why I can't get out of the shower, why the guy in Fordham is probably currently tending to his virtual fields, and how we might motivate someone to choose air supply. Try it out. Run tests. Figure out the initial motivation points and the follow-on motivation points. Because no one's going to become a customer by accident. you got to build this stuff from the ground up. And give us a holler at team at gettacklebox.com if you've got questions or you want to talk through motivation for your business. And as always, have a great week. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you got a startup idea, head to gettacklebox.com and click on the Tacklebox method to build it, leveraging everything we've learned, helping hundreds of businesses go from zero to life-changing.